we welcome you to the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. We Love Arabian Horses has a simple goal, to promote the Arabian breed to those outside of our community, moms, dads, and kids of all ages, and of course, horse lovers from every walk of life. Thank you for listening. This episode of the We Love Arabian Horses podcast is sponsored by Markel. Markel is the insurance with horse sense. If you'd like to learn more, visit MarkelInsurance.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-L Insurance.com. And let them know we sent you. Hello, everybody. This is Paul Costa with the We Love Raving Horses podcast. And today we're thrilled to have Scott Benjamin joining us. Hello, Scott. Hello, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you, Scott. You're a passionate Arabian horse lover, and you've been in the industry for many years, and we'd like to just learn a little bit about your background and experience. Why don't we start with where you first found horses, or Arabians in particular? I first found horses as a very young man. I grew up on a farm in the Midwest, in central Illinois, and we had a lot of animals on the farm, and my father was a was a cash crop farmer, but he always had a passion for horses, and so some extra money that was obtained by my brother and I at very young ages was put to use um, with my father's intention to buy us a pony. We wanted motorbikes. He wanted us to have a pony and that pony turned out to change my life. That pony matured into um, a second pony for my younger brother, which happened to be a half Arabian. And that pony was so much more amazing than the first pony that we bought. And that's how we ended up in Arabian horses. My father deducted that that if the second pony was the better pony with the Arabian blood in it, it must be the Arabian horse that, that made him special. So that started a very small family farm for us. And I followed that passion to university, to Michigan State, where I originally started as a vet student, ended up as an animal science major, focused on breeding and genetics. And that took me to Poland in my very last year of university. And, and from there, my world expanded exponentially and made connections and and all over the world. And I've been passionately following this breed and this this love, this great love of my life for, for 45 years now. Hard to believe that that's really yeah. the truth, but I've had an incredibly fortunate life all because of the Arabian horse and that decision that my father made back in 1977. It's funny how one thing is kind of the, 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 the nugget, right? And it's the beginning yeah. of the, you know, the tree that grows. It was the, it was the spark. It was the spark for sure. I'd always had love for animals, Paul, but that was, it was, it was that, that focus on horses that really, that really transformed my life um, in such a profound way. So tell us a little bit about your experience in Poland. I know a lot about it, but others may not. And it's really fantastic experience. We'd love to hear about it. It was, I was, I was very fortunate to uh, my, the, the conclusion of my university studies in the late eighties, coincided with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so Poland, which had been behind the Iron Curtain for all of my life, um, was suddenly now much more available to the rest of the world. And I made an inquiry to see if I could, I was really passionate about wanting to learn about breeding and not just reproduction, but about the science and the philosophy and the art of breeding. And I was fortunate enough to work with some of the greatest breeders of our of our lifetimes, Ignacy Jaworowski from Michałów and Andrzej Krzysztofowicz from Jarek Podlaski in the very twilight of their careers. They, these were the same men that had started those programs after the war. Krzysztof Wojciech, of course, had traveled with those horses 
had rescued those horses when they were when they were um, the remains of the Polish horses that were not confiscated by the Soviets at the beginning of World War II and then stayed at Yanapolovsky during the German occupation and traveled with those horses they were, as they were evacuated west through the bombing of Dresden and and repatriated all those horses back to Poland. So these were men with an incredible amount of history and an incredible amount of knowledge of generations of amazing horses. And so I was fortunate enough to, to be mentored by them and learn from them. And then of course, their, their, um, their successors at Yanapolaski were, were Mark Trella and at Michalf was Jezur Białowolk. And those, those men and those Isabella Zawadzka was another incredible person that, that shaped my life in so many wonderful ways. And I was just, I was very fortunate as a young man in my early twenties to, to see Poland rise to another zenith really um, from the, its heyday in the 60s and 70s when those horses were coming to North America and being exported all over the world and the Polish horse was really the pinnacle of the breed to watch those horses rise again especially in the European and Middle Eastern markets and show scenes and to put Pride of Poland back on top as the barometer of of sales within the international industry and see some of those great horses that were bred succeed like the Kvesturas and the Zagroblas and the Externs and the Pianissimas and Pingas and Amandorias and all those amazing horses that came out of Poland in that in that 25-year period that I had a chance to be a part of their history was really, honestly, Paul, the greatest privilege of my professional life. I owe so much to those people and those horses, and I have a great love for Poland. I fell in love with the horses, but I hadn't expected to fall in love with the people and the country. It's an amazing place, and I still have such a love and a passion for Poland and its people and its horses. So how long were you there? I worked there for five years. I went to do a, I went to do a three month, um, what was called a senior thesis study. And I ended up staying for as long as I possibly could. I extended it to almost six months until they kicked me out of the country before I violated my visitor visa, came back and, and wrote that thesis, finished my studies and um, went back and took it. That was in December, had the thesis written by mid-February and was back working at Behalf by early April. And so I ended up working there four years full time besides the until the end of 95. Uh, besides the six months that I sent, spent there as a, as a student. And so I, um, it was, I was committed to making that work. I can remember telling them there isn't a job you can't ask me to do that I won't do to make sure that I can stay here and learn about these horses and learn from you and be a part of this world. And they rewarded that. And I am forever grateful that they saw my passion and recognized it and nurtured it in such a wonderful way. Yeah, it's an incredible experience. So where, wh what led you from then to kind of the steps along the way to where you are now? So then I realized, you know, I, it was it, it, when you when you're in when you're in university as a, as a young person in the horse industry, there's there's lots of paths that people try to steer you into. And, and really, most of the the most successful people I've learned, have always sort of steered their own path and found their own way forward. And and certainly there wasn't a, a defined role or a way to train people that were passionate about breeding and in, in animal science departments in North America in the late 80s and early 90s. So. I just kept pursuing opportunities that would allow me to use those skills. And so along the way, I was fortunate enough to work for some really amazing places, um, Bishop Lane Farm in, in California, who I met, of course, in the, in the association that they had with Monogram and the Polish State Studs, especially in health. I worked for Cree Run for a while, learned a little bit about Arabian racing, had some opportunity to work for some, some studs in Europe 
Toscar Arabians, which had transplanted from Texas to the UK and a little bit of time at Blumerod. And then eventually after starting a family and living in, and living in Canada, I found a job um, back in North America with ARIA International. And that sort of opened up all the opportunity for me to be back involved with the International Arabian Horse Scene, which eventually led me to Malawi. I judged my first horse show in, in Australia in 2004, fell in love with the country, was amazed by the quality of, of horses. They, had, had, they have a unique population of horses, um, especially they did at that time nearly 20 years ago because they were isolated from the rest of the world in many ways. That was, that was before frozen semen was coming into Australia on a regular basis. They were having to import horses to bring them in. And that was, of course, that required a lot of resources and a lot of quarantine and all of those things to get horses here. So I, uh, I, I met the Farrell family and, and ended up um, eventually entering an agreement with them where I would help them advance their program and, and, get them some notoriety on the international stage, which was a great fit for not only my skill set, but for my passions and and for what the Frills wanted to achieve. And that's been that's where I've been for the last 13 years. And it's it's eventually involved a move to Australia, which I've been here since 2016. So six and a half years now. Wow. I've been here living full time in Australia. So well that's fantastic and I appreciate all the details. You've also um, managed a lot of shows and judge shows and, you know, kind of been in charge of a couple of those things that I'd love to hear more about. That's one way I think I first met you was at the World Cup in Vegas that you were a big part of that show. Yeah, my experience with with um, Aria and the Song family, of course, was right around the time that the World Cup was being started and the Arabian Horse Breeders Alliance was formed in North America. So um, I was asked to be a part of that a show committee that show organization and along with some really amazing breeders that put a lot of faith and and put a lot of passion behind that project and we had a great we had a great absolutely fantastic show committee it was terrell o'shea of course who's run scottsdale and does the most amazing job ever and scott bailey and kelly charpentier and phyllis Amalfa, and all of us came together and and with the help and support of those those founding members of the alliance and that and that really progressive board to create something that was very different and i'll always be proud of what the world cup has done within the industry they've changed it really transformed the industry on on so many levels i think people now 15 16 years on that first show was in 2007 um really um take for granted so many of the changes that the world cup ushered in to the breed the international classes at scottsdale which are now a big which are now a huge part of that show um the world's oldest arabian horse show now has international championship classes thanks to the what the world cup brought in the whole concept of um, yearling championships on the global scale at the all nations cup in paris and and every major show around the world was also an innovation that originally started in australia that we brought to the world cup and it, it caught on because there were such large entries in those classes and now yeah. That we celebrate around the world and so it was the concept was to try to bring the world paul to north america and make the world a smaller place bring the best global experts which of course you've met many having been at the world cup several times because of that process and i think i think we've succeeded i think we've we've that i'm really i'll always be proud of what that show has been able to to accomplish through its many evolutions. It's of course now no longer in Vegas. It did get the nickname, the, the Vegas show, but it's now in Scottsdale, um, which has allowed that latest iteration, which you were, which you attended this, this past year as well, has 
a whole new sort of flavor to it because it's allowed us to focus more on breeders, which is always part of the focus as well. So those breeders showcases during the show and after the show right there in Scottsdale have been such a bonus. So, you know, I've been, I've been, that was managing smaller shows before that in Canada right. Region 17 and, and the Calgary Horse Association, but that World Cup really opened up the possibility for me to be involved with other shows around the world and do lots of different things. Of course, Pride of Poland was always something I was very involved in um, in Poland and was privileged to be a part of that auction annually and help them with their Polish national championships and the other activities that they did. So I have been really fortunate to be involved with a lot of, of events and positive activities around the world. And I'll, I'll always be grateful for that. Well, and I, I want to go back to World Cup for a second. And I've been you know involved with it first as a judge, um, and then more recently, well, I judged it again this year, but over, you know, I've watched it over 12 years and it's just, in my mind, it is a stunning show and had a little setback, of course, as everyone did with COVID, they made the move to Scottsdale. I think that show is, is made a, uh, profound impact on the industry already. And I think it has more to go. I think it is a very, uh, brilliant design and it honors the breeder, which we don't do often enough, in my opinion, um, I'm just very impressed with the, the entire event. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It it has been, it has been navigated um, really with Terrell at the helm since the very beginning. She's she's the last show committee member that's original. Um, as I spent quite a lot, of, quite a few years away from the World Cup while I was living when I first moved to Australia, and and there's a whole new um, board of directors now involved. Very progressive group of really positive, passionate, energetic people, and it's really nice to see that they're they're committed to transforming that show and continuing to let it evolve to be the best that it can possibly be. And and focus on breeders is is why it's such a great fit for me personally, Paul. I've always been most passionate about supporting Arabian horse breeding and providing support for breeders. And and that show continually allows that to happen. And so that's really that's I hope to continue to see it grow and I hope it inspires more activities around the world of, of the same kind. I agree. Scott, you judge a lot as well. One thing that is important to judges and the community of folks that show to judges is the integrity of judges. I know you have a lot of opinions on the integrity and how to maintain your integrity when you're judging. Talk a little bit about that and share your perspectives. So I think judges, I think as, as fellow judges, Paul, I think judges take get a little bit of a bad rap around the world, having been on plenty of show committees where judges selection always gets into a heated debate about um, there are quite a few people that believe that, you know, most judges can be motivated by things other than selecting the best horse. And and I always say as a judge, it's not my job to walk into the ring and select my favorite horse. It's my job to walk in the ring and select the horse that's closest to the ideal, whatever that is, as a breeding horse, as a performance horse, that's my job. Whether, whether it's somebody I like riding or handling the horse or somebody I don't. My job is to select the horse that's closest to the ideal. And I truly believe, Paul, in all the many years I've been judging now, 20 plus years, all over the world in, in, on every continent with literally hundreds of people, most judges are out there trying to do the very best they can. I always say, especially at a, at a regional show or, or a show like Scottsdale where there's a lot going on and people get tired. Most time when judges are making poor decisions, it's because they're either tired or they're hungry. Um, as a, as a, I understand clearly as a, as someone who manages shows that 
if you keep your judges happy, well-fed and well-careful, they will do a fantastic job. And I think it's extremely important that we go out and do that every time. The future of the breed and the direction of the breed decisions that are breeding decisions that are made are often times reflected by the placings at horse shows. I'm not saying that's the right thing and that's how it should go, but that is what's happening in several um, places around the world. And so it is our job as judges to get out there and do the best that we can. And I truly believe that for the most part, 95 plus percent of the time, judges are out there doing the very best they can with the, with the um, making the decisions that are right for the breed and, and right for the future and the integrity of the horse. Well, I agree. And I see very little of that ever. It's a rare experience. And I think there's a lot more talk about it than is actually occurring. Um, just from my perspective on the inside of the arena, my experience has been the same as what you just shared. Scott, let's talk a little bit about um, you joining the We Love Raving Horses podcast team. Welcome aboard. We're thrilled to have you. Tell us a little bit about your interest in the podcast and We Love Raving Horses and kind of where you want to take your, your editorial and your content, who you interview. Thank you, Paul. That's, that's, it's such a privilege for me to be involved. When I was first interviewed by Debbie, as Debbie Kane of, of several months ago, someone I, who I have tremendous respect and appreciation for, it was um, a privilege to just find out what We Love Arabian Horses was about and um, the, the passion behind this project and the vision and the mission and, and what you're trying to accomplish is exactly in alignment, Paul, with what we need for this breed right now. We need positive energy. We need good messages getting out there. We need us all together, all to come together as a community and share our stories and share our, and pool our resources to make sure that this breed has every chance to not only survive, but really thrive going forward. I always say we have the best story to tell. We do. We have a built-in several thousand year history of an amazing breed of horse that if we get that horse, if they get that story out and share it with people, um, we're, it's inevitable that we'll find people that will get involved with this breed in a really passionate, wonderful way that it's, it's a fantastic resource. And what you're doing to relove Arabian horses just allows that story to get out there and be shared in a more positive, impactful way to a greater number of people. So I can't, we can't thank you enough for doing that, Paul. Well, we're thrilled and we continue to grow and build and, you know, produce um, what we believe is educational content on topics that people would like to hear. And I'm particularly thrilled to have you on board because we definitely would like to continue building our international presence and interviews with folks um, around the planet who are expert Arabian um, horse folks that will um, really add to the whole international tapestry, if you will, of our community. It was, um, it always it still astounds me. I know it shouldn't in my sixth decade of life, but it, it always astounds me that I can get off a plane anywhere in the world and find someone that shares the same passion I do for the Arabian horse. It's, a, it's amazing the places that I've been, South America, North America, the Middle East, Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia, Africa, you, places you don't think you're going to find a Arabian horse lovers, and, and then there they are. And you meet these people and you realize that you have so much more in common um, from different cultures and different backgrounds and different religious beliefs than you ever believed was possible. And that's all mm -hmm. because of the Arabian horse. And that's the, that's the story I'd like to share with, with your listeners, Paul, is to, is to interview those people, those, these amazing people that I've had the good fortune to meet around the world and make them more familiar to your listeners and, and bring the world 
closer. We all have this shared passion and common love for this amazing breed that has transformed our lives in so many ways. And I think once those stories, once people connect with those stories of those people from those different places around the world, we'll all feel more connected and part of part of the bigger picture. Another thing that's really important to me, which I mentioned earlier, is is breeders and breeding and to focus on that. And that and I'd like to I'd like to introduce the world to some of these great breeders who are out there making the hard decisions and playing the long game, because it certainly is a long game, um, that creating the horses that are not only defining the present day success, but will will shape the future of the breed for decades to come. Well, and I think for us and we love Arabian horses, one of our significant talking points is the breeders and supporting the breeders, helping other breeders, you know, newer, younger breeders learn from the older breeders and mentor breeding programs and articles and, you know, information about the breeding community that helps them continue to be um, fortified and have the resources they need to continue growing. They're, they're a critical component. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it's, um, they're often lost um, amongst the performance horses, right? They, they really need to have that higher priority in my mind. And so I appreciate you adding value to that. Well, thank you for asking me to do that. I think there was a time, I mean, I'm old enough to have lived through the industry when the breeders really were leading the industry back in the in the 70s and even through the early 80s. And certainly they were in the 60s. And and times have changed and there's a transformation in terms of, of trainers and agents and, and managers sort of leading the industry now. But that doesn't mean that there's not room for equity for the breeders. And that's, and we will, I believe we'll find that. I think the breed is strengthened um, as, as the, as the breeders find a greater foothold to shape the future of the industry, I think the breed will continue to be strengthened and hopefully this platform will allow that to happen. Well, Scott, if people want to reach out to you personally, what's the best email for you? My best email is, um, Scott at BenjaminEquine.com, which is pretty easy to remember. Um, just remember that, that I'm, I'm in Australia, but having, having, um, having had contact and continual contact with people, people all around the world. Um, I'm available on every time zone. So that's, that's, that's never a problem for me. It's, it's one of the, one of the perks and one of the um, pitfalls of having like so many friends all over the world. I get it. So it's Scott at BenjaminEquine.com and Scott, just thank you again for your time. Thank you for becoming a host and we look forward to hearing some great things from you and your guests. Paul, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of the team and I'll look forward to, to, to so many engaging and, and interesting interviews ahead. Hey, this is Austin, director of the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. Thanks for listening. If you want to share ideas, feedback, or want to get involved, send me an email at austin at welovearabianhorses.com.